This is a Culture Inject production. Greetings, Nevers family, and welcome back to the Nevers podcast, where we review and dissect every episode of the Nevers. Today, we're back to review episode six, titled True. But before we do, we'd like to remind you to visit us at hbothenevers.com as well as at theneverspodcast.com and all over social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube, simply at hbothenevers. I'm Laura and as always, I have my trusty sidekick Chirag with me. If you love the show and want to support the show, you can do so by leaving us a rating and review wherever you listen to us, but particularly on Apple Podcasts. The Steve38 left us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Love the podcast so much. I watched the show once, then I listened to your podcast and appreciate the episode so much more. You helped me to see things that I missed. So thank you for the review, Steve. Uh, we have another five-star rating from Fropic56. Uh, they wrote, So glad I tried a different Nevers podcast. Great cast that gives interesting insights into each episode. Not a podcast that overlooks their flaws. They read good and bad reviews and takes everyone's opinion seriously. Keep up the great work. Thank you very much, and we appreciate the positive feedback. And we've got another five stars from JHAR2 via Apple Podcasts. Very entertaining and enjoyable podcast. I really appreciate this podcast recaps and discussion and how open they have been to fans of the show. Only five episodes into The Nevers, and it is quickly becoming my favorite show. Thank you. A little bit about the podcast. You can download and stream it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, and uh, you can subscribe. You can comment. uh, You can send any questions or comments or topic suggestions that you might have to theneverspodcast at gmail.com. So just a little news to update everyone. Uh, We have some announcements. Uh, Water Tower Music has released the official soundtrack for The Nevers Season 1. You can purchase the soundtrack on iTunes in the USA only and Spotify. The second season of our series In Conversation With premieres in two weeks. So In Conversation With is where we sit down for a one-on-one chat with actors and creatives behind the scenes of various Weedinverse shows for an in-depth conversation. Season 2 will be premiering with actor George Dawson who plays Dr Edmund Haig's assistant. It's a good chat, we think you're going to like it. Also, we've surpassed 13,000 downloads this month, so thank you. A little bit of housekeeping before we get into the review and analysis of this week's episode. We have a few letters from last week to catch up and uh, get through. So we've got an email from Kim in regards to episode 5. She sent, just wondering if you guys felt Malady's capture was too easy. I would expect a gang leader of sorts to be more powerful than that. I guess I'm not 100% sure what her turn is. Did she want to get captured? Thank you for your time, and I've really, really enjoyed the show and your podcast. Thank you, Kim, for that question. Yeah, I think, I think it was all, it was all part of a very devious plan. I think uh, the cool thing is to me that it looks like Malady was motivated, or at least I thought that Malady was motivated by unconscious impulses, but really the truth is that she's very consciously, very purposely choosing to act the way she's acting. Like she's making the decisions that look impulsive, 
but they're actually calculated. So it seems like Malady is a bit more lucid and cogent than we as an audience may have been giving her credit for. Yeah, I think at the time, maybe it was a little bit in my mind, well, that was kind of easy. That fight, she got taken out really easily. Um, Obviously, it will become part of her plan. I do think that maybe, like you say, we had that question, didn't we, last week of how in control is she? She's unstable to a certain degree, but to be able to hold the persona of Effie so well, we think that it's more of a dramatic act for a show as opposed to possibly her being severely unstable. But we'll see more of her, I guess, in the aftermath of her not actually being hung. We'll see. So we've got another email from Mary Hill. Uh, they, uh, They sent in, I have to say that the sexy bits at the beginning of episode five struck me as odd, but maybe a necessary release of tension. Uh, did I miss it? Why the title, the nevers, and one last thought, you came so close to saying it, Augie is a bird brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm off to give you a five-star review. Thank you so much, Mary. Uh, I would say in regards to your, the, the sexy bits, I think, well, it's HBO, and it wouldn't be HBO without some sexy bits. Uh, I will say this, the sexy stuff at least isn't just gratuitous, you know, it, it's gonna make Dr. Horatio Cousins feel guilty and, you know, he's got a wife and a child, and sprinkling some guilt into this gumbo will only make it more flavorful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as far as the Nevers, the title of the show, I don't know if you read this, Laura, but uh, I read, I think in the trades, that the name is supposed to represent this group of people who sh- just shouldn't exist. Like, by all traditional societal conventions, they're taboo. They're the freaks, the outliers, the underclass, the feared, the hated, the nevers. That's kind of like the idea of it from what I understand. Yeah, I kind of draw the same, drew the same conclusion. I thought to myself, especially in regards to this show in particular, just thinking about it in like really simplistic terms, you know, the people that have been given the powers are the people that would, in my, you know, in society's opinion, never have come to be anything. but now that we're seeing them have power. Uh, Also, in this episode in particular, in episode six, we see um, they say that they they never win. They come very close, but they they never win. So for me, it's kind of like seeing possibly a victory for the people that never would have it. Because up until now, I've not really actually thought about it. Everybody keeps asking me, what's the nevers? The nevers, what's what's the nevers? I'm just like, oh, it's a really awesome show, but I've not really thought about the title much. (laughs) Yeah, they never really mention it. They mention The Touched. Yeah, I've seen a lot of angry people online, like, why isn't this show just called The Touched? Uh, We have an email from Liz Crooks. Uh, Hello from Maryland. Uh, Another bit supporting Amalia being from the future. In episode three, Penance invents a device to uh, project Mary's voice from the park and into the city. Amalia responds, oh, you invented the amplifier. Amalia never seems overly surprised by Penance's inventions, and whether it's because she has knowledge of devices from the future or because she tries to keep her emotions in check all the time, we're not sure. Love your podcast. Thanks for contributing to the different theories and uh, trying bits of dialogue together that I sometimes didn't catch. Take care, Liz Cricks. Thank you very much. Um, Yeah, I agree with you. I think that I did kind of pick up on several things that she said. Um, The amplifier the x-ray there's things and yeah she's never really surprised by it 
and I was questioning, I'm not sure when the amplifier was invented and whether at this time it was just kind of that's what it would be called if it was a thing in existence or if this is, you know, the very, very, very first time it's ever been um, even thought about at this time. But yeah, I, I definitely had that thought of she definitely knows, she's she's talking about it like it's, yeah, something she definitely knows exists and is a thing. Yeah, and now that we've seen episode six, kind of like looking back, you know, like hindsight 2020 kind of thing, mm. all of these clues just kind of are coming together. It's like when we were watching each of these episodes individually, we were very hyper zoomed in to what's happening here in this episode, but we couldn't see the whole picture and then episode six just kind of like it, like kind of like zoomed us in like Google Maps. And now we can see everything. Sorry, zoomed us out. And yeah. we can see everything so much better now. Yeah, I think we had it first with the Lucy revelation. You look back at the earlier episodes and you see all the little sneaky Lucy bits where you think, oh, wow, it's kind of obvious, but you never pick up on it because you have no reason to look for it. Um, and then obviously with the whole Malady Effie thing, Again, you're not looking out for it, so you don't pick up on it. But once you know, you look back and you see all these moments. So it's, um, yeah, very nicely done. Totally, yeah. Uh, we have an email from Berza. Um, Hi, gang. Uh, Chirag said in the last episode that Amalia's bar fight was a subversion of the idea that only men start fights in bars. As this is still a Weirdin show, I see that scene as a nod to one of Faith's many bar fights, specifically when she dances to Living Dead Girl. Amalia is literally a living dead girl and both fights start with a kiss. In the first step, um, Amalia tells Masson that the turns are not an affliction. After this episode, I find myself siding with Lucy. The turns are afflictions. Most of them are more of a hindrance than a help. Primrose and Myrtle are examples of two of my biggest anxieties, being freakishly tall and being unable to communicate. Lucy's turn killed her child and made her incapable of physical intimacy. Then there is the fact that Amalia seems to be animating someone else's discarded flesh and her bravado in the face of the Beggar King implies that she could move to another body if her current one was destroyed. I'm starting to recognise the shady benevolence of the Watcher's Council and the powers that be in the Aliens. I don't trust that they are the good guys or that their goal is the emancipation of women. Are they going to lift up women by robbing them of their voice and exploding their babies? And then they force them into a conflict against the British patriarchal establishment, which isn't a conflict that Amalia and Bonfire can win. As the Beggar King says, it only takes a gun to take out Bonfire and Amalia's, and their main weapon is fisticuffs. The aliens are like the US when they give weapons to a guerrilla group so that they can destabilise a regime the US doesn't like. Nothing of what we have seen suggests to me that the aliens care about the well-being of the people they have altered. That's from Berzia, thank you. It is questionable, isn't it? And I think that this episode 6 kind of tackles it in a way. We've now got to think of this from two different points of view, of the future when the the Galanthi turn up, and they're, they're, what they're trying to do at that point in time and then the past where we're at at the moment with this single Galanthi and what their goal is um, and how the two intertwine together because we don't know whether this is creating a new path or whether this is setting us onto the path that we've already seen in the future because time travel is confusing. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, I think that you're right, Laura. It is a question that we don't have the answer to. 
And um, I think Berzer kind of really hit on the big questions. Are these aliens, like, are they benevolent gods, like the PDC believe? Or are they the malevolent conquerors that the free lifers believe them to be? Um, and then you have the question, are these powers a gift, like Penance believes? Or are they a curse, like Lucy and Lord Masson believe? So I think, like, for me, this episode really sums it up with the dichotomy between uh, Knitter and Stripe. Knitter kind of represents hope, and Stripe represents despair. And the question is asked of us as the audience, is there hope, or is there only despair? And, like, three episodes ago, I think Mary Brighton really encapsulated all of this, because her ability was essentially the gospel of the aliens, and it was so clearly a beautiful gift. She was a symbol of hope. And in episode three, when she gets assassinated, that's symbolically like the death of hope. And it would seem like the show kind of definitively answers the question that, yes, these abilities are a curse because they bring only suffering and death. Yes, there is no hope. There's only despair. But then at the very end of episode three, when we see all the touched who were drawn to Mary's Song of Hope, we see uh, Bonfire Annie leading the way, and we see the dawn of a new and strengthened community of the touched. And the show just kind of like undermines the answer that it just gave to the question by saying, yes, these abilities can be gifts, and yes, there is hope. So I like that hope and despair are kind of explored equally and are given equal weightage and the answer is never actually definitively given. It's really up to us as viewers to decide for ourselves at this point. Yeah, like, uh, I get, I, I understand where you're coming from where you think these aliens are not, they have an agenda of their own or these gifts are clearly not gifts, they're curses, they're afflictions. I get that side. I get the other side too. It's just like a balance beam. Hmm. I think we thoroughly answered that question. <laughs> Thank you, Berzer. So uh, next we have a letter from Blake Colby. Uh, they sent, Amalia is not an alien. She is very much Terran, but comes from a dystopic future uh, driven by climate disasters. A place where there is little land because of rising sea levels and the spread of toxic waste but where women have a voice and are tough as nails. The mission was a time-traveling intervention to the birthplace of the fossil fuel-extracting industrial revolution, Victorian England. The goal was to create someone like Penance, who would set industrialization on an alternative trajectory of clean and electrified power, sort of like John Connor was supposed to do to stop Skynet. Perhaps the blue orb was intended as the seed for that new technology before something went horribly wrong. Uh, note the glittering ship sent crashing in episode 1 more closely resembles the craft in the first movie version of H.G. Wells' Time Machine, uh, 1960 Rod Taylor and Vet uh, Mimo, than it does any spaceship. Uh, greatly enjoying your insights and takes on the show, Blake. Thank you so much, Blake. Um, yeah, I, I think, I think that would make this show a documentary, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I kind I kind of like, I love this theory. Penance to me definitely does feel like the key to the future. Yeah. And 
we do see uh, Stripe uh, cough up those glowing blue coolant pods. So that kind of suggests that the future is very hot. So maybe some global warming took place. And uh, one of the big themes of the show is powerful people resisting change, which is exactly what's happening today as far as climate change, like politicians and lobbyists and oil tycoons refusing to sacrifice their short-term profits for long-term, for the long-term good. Uh, it would be like it would be amazing if this theory is true. I, I think it would be awesome. But uh, I don't know. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I'm kind of on the same like page as this. I think you know they kind of described to us that uh, in this episode that the Galanthi came and they was helping with kind of these big world issues. So I think definitely you know climate disasters and that have taken place. Um, I was thinking the same as you with the the coolant that it might not just be that you know she was playing dead to escape their scanners or something, but that body temperature regulation is a thing because of you know global warming and stuff um i think that penance will end up playing a massive part if anything's going to change then it will be with technology to try and stop all of this so i think maybe that's the way it's going is that instead of it being here's the galanthi this alien race that's come to save the planet and the humans have rebelled against that because they don't want to be saved by some outer influence because that's scary and you know they just react against it instead this one galanth is trying to give the power to other people you know if it's the people themselves with the power to make the changes will that make a difference so hopefully that will be the direction it goes in cool so now we can kind of like get into this episode yeah so today we're back to review episode six which is titled true so the synopsis for this episode after Amalia's origin story is revealed, a long-awaited reunion crystallizes the orphan's mission. We have the cast and crew of all the usual players. We're introducing Claudia Black as Stripe, uh, written by Jane Spenson, directed by Zetna Fuentes. Uh, and I don't, uh, I haven't, I'm not really familiar with a lot of Claudia Black's other sci-fi uh, shows and and stuff. I I know I know her from the second Uncharted game. She played uh, Chloe, but other than that, but I really enjoyed her performance. Yeah, I thought she was great. Yeah, my sister was really excited because she said that she's a huge fan of hers. But I hadn't like I didn't have her in my mind as like remembering seeing her in anything. But then when when looking, I've seen that I have um, seen her in things. Uh, she's also done uh, Gears of War game wise. So, yeah, I think this right. is probably a very good role for her. And to see her as well straight away, because you kind of, from from the very get-go, you think, hmm, that's Amalia. So it's really nice to see the same character played by a different person. I always find that interesting in shows. I think one of my favourite moments from Dollhouse is seeing Victor play Topher because they do it so well. So to see get to see two actors play the same character uh, is really interesting. They do a great job. Yeah. It's cool to see what different takes they have and what what unique things they bring to it. Mm. But like between both iterations there was a very clear through line just like you like I kind of noticed the energy of Amalia immediately. Yeah. And I, I loved that. What do you have any initial impressions about this episode? Uh so straight away it's that 
wow, am I watching the right TV show? <laughs> Have I clicked on the wrong thing? Because it's obviously a completely different setting. Again, much like Dollhouse with the, the Epitaph episode at the end of the season, each season um, taking place way in the future. So it's not, you know, if you're a Whedon fan, it's not anything crazy out of the ordinary. But I guess just for TV shows in general, it's very different um, to be thrown somewhere very far away from where you were. <laughs> But yeah, I guess it was nice to see and I think it was done really well. Every every time you see something that's set way in the future, it's nice to see how they deal with it. I liked the settings, I liked the look of everything, I liked the costumes, I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, I don't know if it's just me, but I felt like this this episode and just this show in general is so stuffed to the brim. <laughs> like I, I just want to like preface uh, this review by saying that like my my mind feels so crowded <laughs> that I'm going to try to be and I apologize in advance I'm going to try to be half articulate I'm I'm going to do this review in grunts I'm going to try to get <laughs> something across Yeah I think one of my main points to think of was like this episode was great because it answered so many questions but it also gave us an equal amount of new questions <laughs> Yeah, it was really nice to see the future and these different factions of soldiers and things, but also they talk about everything so quickly. Like, just from one view, it was almost impossible to remember and think about clearly the different factions and all these different characters in the future and what's actually gone on. Um, yeah, I know. Tell me about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I only got a chance to watch this episode once this time, but I, I even just watching it once... I could just I feel overwhelmed by this wealth of information. Yeah, it was a So, lot. I have a huge I have a lot of initial impressions. I want to start with uh just I think it's interesting how we have these two people, right? We have Molly and we have for now I'll call her Stripe. Yep. Who are so different and disparate from each other, but are living these very similar parallel lives that are kind of destined to converge because like molly says god makes his plans and it feels to me like molly represents the plight of the traditional woman and stripe represents the plight of the modern woman they're kind of like mirror images of each other and like one and the same and they both so they so here here's the parallel between them. They both become jaded by the societal circumstances in which they live. Like we see the transformation of Molly from the bubbly baker with her whole life ahead of her to a kind of depressed widow with bills to pay. We don't see Stripe's transformation, but we do know that she didn't always used to be uh like the way she is right now. Um we know that from, you know, her Victoria knowledge and the fruit eating and uh but both Molly and Stripe are driven by hopeless circumstance to kind of end their lives and they experience this convergent dying and rebirth together as Amalia. So the way that I'm seeing it is Amalia is the coming together of Molly and Stripe. But I do think that they've kind of they've been in each other all along and once again like Molly says, it's God's plan or Galanthi's plan. Mm. And that scene with Amalia and the Galanthi kind of made the convergence between Amalia's inner Molly and Stripe a little more complete, I think, 
with Amalia now remembering more of her inner Molly. So I thought that was really cool. Very nicely summed up there. <laughs> yeah, and we uh, and I, I promise I won't go too long. But we do. We we finally see Amalia betraying Malady or, or Sarah, uh, and kind of like like before we get into the meat and potatoes of this crazy episode, uh, I wanted to make a little side point that kind of ties into the theme of betrayal that kind of defines a lot of Malady's vengeance. So. Malady's real name is Sarah. In the Old Testament, Abraham's wife's name is Sarah. Sarah is barren. So in order to be fruitful and multiply, Abraham uh, betrays Sarah and takes an Egyptian servant girl as a mistress. So, and that's not the only instance of betrayal. The name Sarah is almost like biblically synonymous with betrayal. And maybe it's a total coincidence, but I'm convinced it's not a coincidence uh, because of the importance of names in this show. Yeah. And uh, we'll get to this later, but I have some really interesting thoughts on Amalia's true name, uh, Zephyr. Yeah, we'll me too. We'll come to that later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Was... Uh, but the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was just saying the, the level of detail in this show is so astounding. And we're going to get to that later. Um, but the connection that really struck me not just because Malady's language is so couched in biblical allusions, but also because it, it's the whole barren thing. And I wanted to kind of front load this because if I was to offer any kind of like a bit of constructive criticism, uh, this is where it would be. So the comparison in this show between Amalia and Malady is great. It's, it's totally fine. Like they're similar, not just phonetically, but they've both gone through hell they both think they have to be the savior and they're both kind of like prophets like uh, Amalia quite literally with her visions of the future. Mm. Um, but what, what I bumped up against is the fact that just like Sarah in the Bible is barren, we see that Molly is barren in that Molly sequence. And it's a very, uh, it's a very old and outdated and, Perhaps many would argue misguided at best, uh, maybe like misogynistic at worst motif of what it means for a woman to be barren is that when her ability to create is taken away, then the only thing left to do is to destroy. And in Molly's case, she destroys herself. We see that Molly has had two miscarriages. We see her living a life without purpose which presumably wouldn't be the case if she had kids. We see her learn that the guy she actually liked is married now and his wife is seven months pregnant. And then there's a scattering of other clues, like the baker lady was pregnant and um, in, in, uh, in Molly's first conversation with uh, the guy she likes, she mentions that her goal is to have a family. And uh, there's all these clues, right? And then we see her jump into the into the river. And I think this is something that Whedon has tried to have a conversation with about before with, with Black Widow and Avengers, and that was a big controversy because she was sterilized by the people who were training her, and I'm talking about Black Widow now. She was sterilized by the people who were training her to be a killer because by taking away her ability to create life, it'll make it easier to destroy life. And, um, like, as a man myself, I have no idea what the reality <laughs> of womanhood is. 
but I have heard lots of other women pushing back against this specific motif that continues to recur in art. And I thought, you know, like with the opportunity I have here, I might as well megaphone that sentiment for whatever good it'll do. So I just wanted to get that out of the way. Anyways, unless you have any other thoughts, we can move on to the beat by beat examination of what's going on in this episode. Right. So, so the episode opens with the PDC, which is the Planetary Defense Coalition. Um, the soldiers are leaping from a jet over a destroyed post-apocalyptic dystopian city in the future, or is it meant to be set around like our current day, which you know, twenty twenty ish, and makes sense. Yeah, we're not hundred percent sure when it is, but it's. Sometime around now, probably, maybe. And like I said, we're we're thrown into this uh, am I on the right show kind of thing because there's suddenly this futuristic aircraft with people jumping out of it and we're thrown straight into this futuristic battle. It's a little bit crazy. Uh, we cut to the, the female soldier crawling over some rubble while a recording plays. Give up your name. Give up your blasphemous fight and join the free life army. We are marauders. We are God's men. So already we're, we're given the, the Planetary Defense Coalition and the Free Life Army. So we know that there's at least these two factions in the future that are enemies. The, the PDC then go on to capture Free Life Major Joseph Willing Greenbaum and the, the older female so, soldier who is um, Amalia or Stripe, we'll call her for now in this time, uh, coughs up three coolant pods or glazers used to lower one's body temperature. Uh, so we mentioned in the beginning that we think that they might be, that I thought either to you know hide her body so that the the free lifers can't like scan the area and see any like heat temperatures, but also possibly to regulate body temperature if there's like global warming. You know the the, the planet is probably in complete disarray with storms and different weather effects i don't know that that that's what i would presume is in a, a futuristic planet like this um so maybe that's why but yeah it's a lot to take in in these first few minutes of the show <laughs> yeah definitely uh the the whole thing of the body not being being able to maintain homeostasis really puts into context how brutal that future is mm. and just like the the opening up on this very jarring image that either recontextualizes everything or just confuses the shit out of people for a few <laughs> minutes and then recontextualizes everything. I I loved it. Like I when I saw it, I was like, yes, we're doing Terminator. <laughs> that that was my immediate reaction when I saw that war torn like future. Yeah. And you know, like I feel like it's about time for some for some new James Cameron like content. You know? You know, uh I, I have a joke. The Nevers uh, is actually, you know, the Nevers is also the nickname for the next seven Avatar movies that are never coming out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but anyways, it was, it was a fun opening. I liked it. Yeah, it was good. So in the next scene, we have, um, so while handcuffed and taken hostage, one of the captives reveals that they were tracking the source of a spatial anomaly it's later discovered that the spatial anomaly is a portal through which the Galanthi traveled. In this future, names are considered sacred. Nevertheless, Major Joseph Willing Greenborn offers up his name freely. My name is Major Joseph Willing Greenborn. Free life for life. It's interesting that the free life people are kind of, they, they call themselves God's men. 
and yet they don't hold anything sacred mm. like the PDC do their names. But anyways, so we learned that Stripe was married for three years to two different people and she kept her name even from them. And we also learned that Stripe is from the 41st ground out of Edinburgh and she's one of only three people who got out of Edinburgh. Yeah, so again, that's more questions for me because, I mean, so this is based, you know, just in England still, but this is a worldwide thing happening. I don't know, I'm kind of like, how do they have all this information? You know, you know, where was she, what was she doing, Edinburgh? And yeah, she made it out, out of these only three, and then she was the last one to survive. Uh, the people that she's with, the, the they're not trusting her at this point because she's a stripe and we're presumed that they're not trustworthy that they're just kind of like she's like a mercenary i would presume she just does the job kind of like how uh what bonfire is kind of like and how she talks about herself you know she's getting paid to do a job she'll do that job but she's not necessarily got her heart in it or actually you know really passionate about any cause but she's a soldier and she she can get the job done so as far as far as I can tell, to kind of summarize the whole situation, so in this future we have the Planetary Defense Coalition, yeah, and we have the Free Lifers who are at war with each other. The planet is completely ruined and unlivable, and then the Galanthi come as a catalyst for change, but just like the Victorian society doesn't want change, even those changes that would be good for them, in the same way the Free Lifers don't want any change. And when I was kind of thinking about the free lifers and even calling back to us talking about like the oil tycoon or even just in our own world, like the deforestation of the Amazon uh, for material and resources, I feel like some people choose to make profit from the ashes of a world on fire and they use they use the ash as currency to purchase power and control and supremacy. And for these people, any kind of positive, meaningful, egalitarian change is unprofitable. You know, like like Milton says, it's better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Hmm. And that feels like the kind of vibe that I'm getting from the free lifers. Definitely. So we go on to have it confirmed to us in Act 1 uh, that... Stripe is Amalia because we see her doing the twitching with her hands that she does uh, throughout the other episodes. The mission that the soldiers are on is to find and save the Galanthi. So, you know, we're told things pretty clearly and we're kind of guided along in this chaotic future. Um, So that's what they're there for. But obviously the free lifers want the Galanthi destroyed. Um, And they mention a little bit later on that that's what's happened. There was... 20 of them but now there's probably only one and then the soldiers all have uh, special abilities of their own for example Nitta is empathically enhanced which is interesting so she describes it as first of all their spores and it's different to how the people are affected in the past they just have like um yeah it's not like they've not got superpowers or anything but it's more of a way for them to just be able to communicate and yeah, that's a weird discrepancy. Like uh, yeah. in Victorian times, they're getting superpowers. But in the future, they're just getting kind of like empathically enhanced and they're able to understand the language and technology 
which, of the Galanthi. Which I can only assume is that they chose to give that level of power because they only want, they only needed that level of uh, communication from the humans in the future to be able to help them uh, save their own planet, essentially. Whereas now this one Galanthi's had to give them real power to the to the few to now you know this is the last stitch effort right this is this is it it's it's all or nothing this one galanthi is trying to if this one galanthi is just trying to save the planet and the humans um and there's no ulterior motive we know like in the future the spores are translators they activate parts of the mind needed to comprehend the galanthi language and tech so myrtle seems kind of like that mm. in that vein she can understand their language. We don't know if she can understand their technology just yet. But, and I, I don't want to go too far into the future, but in the vision that Amalia has going really far into the future, yes. we see a version of Myrtle that's like a like a super Myrtle or like an evolved Myrtle that's very different. Hmm. So that'll be interesting. And I think these are a bunch of questions that are going to be answered Probably in the second half of the first season. So we learn that Stripe wasn't always a soldier. When Knitter inquires about some of the items around the medbay, uh, Stripe exhibits her knowledge of history by dating the items correctly. And she mentions that I wasn't always a soldier. So my question in this scene is, so they're in a science team's bunker, right? And they find Victorian artifacts. So I feel I feel like the science team might have been planning to go back to the Victorian era uh, and change history all along. Or, but there are there are also those sim strips in the cabinet. Yeah. So I I think like we have two possibilities. Mm -hmm. Either we actually time traveled and we're doing the Terminator thing, <laughs> or everything we've seen in the Victorian era is a simulation and we're doing the Matrix. <laughs> I personally hope it's the terminator approach because we've already spent so much time in the victorian in victorian london that to find out now that none of it is real would be a bit disappointing yeah i think uh so the sim strips you can kind of see are dated 1896 it's got like the one on the top and then the eight nine and then the six at the bottom and then it has like v1 v2 which i'm assuming is like volume one volume two so on and so forth there's also a letter at the top and i wasn't sure whether each one is possibly like an initial of someone's name and it's like the sim strip would put you into their perspective um but more towards what you were saying in terms of like two options uh i was also hoping for it not to be a simulation type thing because that would be a little bit upsetting uh but i think there's two other options in terms of the fact of where like what i was saying at the beginning is this a, a point of time travel is complicated has the stuff in the past that we're seeing already happened to get to the future where we are or is it going to change so that the future that we've just seen won't exist anymore after what we're seeing in the current victorian age um because you can either say that like what you just said they've got the victorian items because they're studying the time back then and possibly the people you know um that might end up getting the powers from the Galanthi. Um, or it's someone like Penance, or it's, you know, studies from Penance uh, passed down and that has already happened 
yeah, time travel is confusing. <laughs> because if if they change the, it's that loop thing, isn't it? Is if they change, go back and change the future, then that future that we've just seen, where the Galanthi and Stripe goes back, won't ever have happened. So how does it? It's like one of those loop things, isn't it? Yeah, it's the it's a Terminator loop thing where how can <laughs> Kyle Reese go back and be the father if he needed to be the father to have to for John Connor to ever have been born to send him yeah. uh back in time. So yeah, I don't know. But um they go on to discover the science team who are killed and strung up. They find also the Galanthi. Nitta says, Imagine getting the planet back, making it livable. Uh, floods, famine, terror storms, the Galanthi can make them stop. Uh, she'd already mentioned, yeah, that they'd set up stuff like that to help. Which is, you know, f- from us now, the information we have tells us that the Galanthi were good and they came to the planet to literally help save the planet from humans, essentially, <laughs> by helping them. But as you say, That's... people don't like change and it's I, I'm only seeing a now a parallel between you know masson and the free lifers and the pdc and the touched and whoever else is is pro change and pro helping the the planet yeah and if you really want to get crazy amalia did call masson a soldier yeah so with the whole hitched back in time thing i mean we'll get to that we'll get to that <laughs> we'll but masson is an option i know what you're getting yeah yeah <laughs> Um, so, uh, whatever caused this dystopian future, it killed 5 billion people, uh, Stripes, sorry, Stripe wonders why the Glanthi didn't come sooner if they could have prevented the destruction. Um, I feel like the whole time they're there, the Glanthi is probably listening in on everything, right? Um, and they're obviously very, uh, empathetic, so they work a lot on feelings, I would imagine, so I feel like throughout this whole process of, of Stripe being there and saying stuff like this would lead, is what leads the Galanthi to saving her and taking her. It wasn't just a random thing. I agree with you. I don't think it was a random thing that they took Stripe, but I don't think that for like a very specific reason. And we're going to get to that. Okay. <laughs> I I also wanted to mention like with the whole, the those guys being... The scientists being hung over the shaft as corpses. Yeah. That reminded me of the Firefly episode where they find that abandoned ship and all the passengers' corpses are hung to the ceiling. It's a that special kind of barbarity. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to blow my theory load just yet, but <laughs> it reminds me a little bit of Dr. Haig. I'll just leave that there for now. Oh, and one more thing. Um, so uh, that scene uh, where... They find the uh, the artificial garden. Yes, you know what I'm talking yes. about. Yeah. So uh, the scene where Stripe kind of she bites into that fruit in the garden and she has this profound moment. I f- I felt like that little artificial garden was a reminder to Stripe of the time before she was a soldier. Uh, like a reminder of the innocent world of childhood, a reminder of the Garden of Eden from which we all come before we become cynical and jaded and we lose our innocence and we lose and we lose hope. And uh, Knitter still has hope. Knitter believes in the Galanthi. She wants to recover that Garden of Eden. She wants to recover a livable world. 
like we heard in that conversation where she was saying, you know, we can stop the floods, we can stop the famine and the terror, terror storms or whatever that was. So that moment between Stripe and Knitter was so beautiful for me because for a second, it looked to me like Stripe acknowledges that maybe Knitter is right. Maybe there is hope. And, uh, and like I, I mentioned the garden, the garden, the garden of Eden, that reference really plays for me because like when that guy says after she bites into the fruit, uh, nobody eat anything yet. <laughs> and the camera cuts to stripe regretting having taken a bite of that fruit. Uh, I thought that was perfect. Just like froze it away. Like, was it me? I didn't touch anything. <laughs> um, it's interesting to see how long the world must have been in this state because they're all, you know, what like 20 to 30 years old and she's maybe like in her 50s and they're acting like they've never they've never seen this before they've never seen real like plant life because the world's so destroyed so it would have been a very long time it seems since she would have had fresh fruit or any fresh food food made out of food we learned that knitter was free life before turning pdc that revelation to me and that conversation that they have, Knitter really embodies the Gandhi quote, like, be the change you want to see in the world. I think she believes that the fact that the Galanthi changed her means that it can change the world. Mm. And she's kind of like a microcosm of that world-changing potential of the Galanthi. And in a sense, like Mary Brighton, she becomes, by extension, a symbol of hope. And also, like Mary, she just gets blasted. Like, uh, we see the shoot-off transpire, killing Knitter, uh, which then drives Stripe to kill herself by overdosing on whatever that medication was. Um, and I wanted to say, I wanted to point out, like, in Knitter's dying moments, the fact that it's Stripe who is having to convince her to have hope, that was heartbreaking for me. Because the conflict between them was essentially that the conflict between hope and despair. Yep. And uh, she and Knitter was trying to convince uh, Stripe to have hope. And for it to reverse like that was, I think, the reason that the Galanthi chose um, Stripe stripes consciousness because in that moment where stripe was saying hey it's uh, uh, i believe i have hope there it's gonna go and get some help i think that moment showed uh her openness uh and her ability to change just like knitter had changed and that was the that was the moment where it all happened that was where she was chosen to be the one yeah yeah, I think I think I think seeing Nita, who is the voice of hope of this whole opening scene and sequence, it, uh, like in her dying moments, essentially give up hope. Not necessarily because she's been killed, but because of you know she's distraught that she thinks the Galanthi is just leaving and giving up on them when she has believed so hard that the Galanthi is there to save her, and having to see Stripe kind of try and keep that hopefulness in her in her dying moments it was we've only just met these characters but it was pretty heartbreaking and yeah I think Stripe 
much like I think I said about Amalia, probably back in like episode two or three, she's not perfect. She's broken, as she says later on in the episode. But deep down, she's very clearly a good person and she will fight for what she thinks is right and always be there for like others. But she's not perfect. And I think that's a good um, hero because it's someone who's very human and wants to help but doesn't necessarily always know how. You know, she she's great in a fight and she'll always have your back, but it's hard to always know what the right thing is to get, to do. And in such a... Still, she's very confused, even now, because there's just not really much guidance and everywhere she goes, she's getting heartbroken for one reason or another. So, yeah, it was very um, it was a very good scene. Very sad. So we end the first act with... Stripe killing herself um, and her being taken. So we know at that moment that her consciousness is definitely going to go into um, Amalia. Or as we learn, we go into the second act, chapter two, and we meet Molly. So we're taken to the Victorian era and are introduced to Molly, um, a meek woman working in a bakery. We see that she marries uh, not Varnum, the man who was softly courting her, but rather Thomas, the obnoxious owner of the bakery. She loses or is actually forced to quit her job and we learn that she had two miscarriages and her husband, of course, blames her for them. So straight away in that scene, we've got a different accent, completely different character, um, Molly, and we see her with Varnum and then with who she ends up with, Thomas, and then that makes sense about what uh, Frank Mundy said about the abusive husband, Um, because we knew from early on that she'd had a bad marriage, um, and we weren't sure what went on and how her husband died, but now we know. And that's already, again, another heartbreaking moment to see someone who going straight into an unhappy place but unfortunately, especially back then, but still now, a lot of people, you know, go into marriages for reason other than than love. So, yeah, it's unfortunate. Um, but we, we, we see the, the course of events that will eventually take us to um, her suicide in the water. Can I just point out how much I I despise that baker lady who's working in that shop? <laughs> She's First awful. of all... Awful. So first of all, she's the one who says uh, to uh, Molly that, uh, what does she say? She says that uh, the Varnum guy, he doesn't have money. You can't marry him. All that stuff. You have to worry about your future. You won't get a better marriage proposal. Go for Thomas. (laughs) Right? She says all that bullcrap. And then she fires Molly Mm -hmm. because, because of her cousin or whatever. Um. And then, uh, like toward like uh, uh towards like the mid mid sequence, that same baker lady, when uh Thomas dies and Varnum becomes successful and has a wife and all that stuff, then the baker lady's like, "Hey, I told you you should have gone for Varnum. No, you didn't. You didn't tell her that. <laughs> you told her the exact opposite, and then you make a really exactly. mean comment about uh, it's bad luck for a barren woman to be near a pregnant lady." It's just like, yeah, she's she's awful. She is terrible. <laughs> like, yeah, especially on top of like everything else that she's been through. 
just having to do with comments like that every day. Mm-hmm. So we're shown uh, several times Molly on her daily walk through that narrow alley, which we remember from episode one. And we see that as her hopes continue to dim, life becomes steadily worse and harder and depression closes in on her much like the narrow alleyway and it gets darker and darker with each walk through that narrow alleyway uh she gets closer to turning right Mm. and ending it with a jump um varnum the guy she actually liked is married and his wife is pregnant uh thomas her husband dies leaving her to look after his mother her mother-in-law yeah, I really love the alleyway scenes, like those shots. Um, as you say, you see it slowly kind of spiral down and you know it, You know she's going to get to the point where she turns right and jumps into the water. Yeah, I thought it was really nicely done, having that kind of repetitive motion that she's going through. Yeah, and that just like the darkness and the narrowness of that mise-en-scene reflects her psychology so well. It's It's really the perfect thing because she got fired and she has to deliver those breads uh on that side of town that river um i feel like when thomas dies it's almost like a mercy because he was horrid but at the same time she's left there with all the debt and to look after his mother so it's not the best of things uh we see that amalia after finding out about varnum and his family uh she bakes him and this for me is like you know her last act of kindness or whatever she she leaves the gifts on his doorstep of the little cakes which she knows that he loved um before finally jumping off the ledge and ending her life yeah as i say i think that's kind of like i don't know the last thing of her kind of tidying away her life and saying goodbye to maybe like the one bit of goodness she could have had if it had gone that way you know this the, the smallest of choices can lead your life in kind of drastic directions kind of saying that's symbolized so well with just like what direction is she gonna walk yeah if she takes a left uh she continues life if she takes a right it's over Mm. it's those decisions small decisions but um yeah so we see her obviously uh jump off the ledge and choose to end her life and then we see stripes consciousness take over amalia's body uh courtesy of the galanthi so she pulls up out of the water, is now Stripe, and uh, she ends up at the asylum where we uh, she meets Melody or Sarah for the first time. The asylum houses, we find out several people with turns, and eventually Dr... Um, well, we meet Dr. Horatio Cousins. She meets him for the first time because he's working at the asylum, and it's there while tending to Molly that he discovers his ability to heal I really liked all of this so I love um trying to make sure I kind of go through things in order because there's a few bits that I really like so obviously when she first gets the asylum and just the way she's talking so absolutely amazing because as I said before about multiple actors playing the same character it's really interesting to see because at that point she's hmm, how do I put this she's imitating essentially the other actress playing the character that she's playing because of the accent and everything 
Right. And, this, and we've gotten so used to her in that accent to, to see her within a like an American accent is very jarring. Yeah. Just like the image in the very beginning of the show with the jet. Yeah, yeah. It was really kind of like, but she did a fantastic job. I thought it was really great. I like the part. So it's nice to see like Sarah really looking after her. And you're instantly like, oh, man, because you know what path it's going to take, right? You know that at some point she's going to betray her somehow and Sarah's going to be just destroyed and become this malady character. There's the little fight, um, which I think actually happens a little bit later on, but on up on the on the landing and the, the other lady's going a little bit crazy about her babies and she slashes Amalia's arm. Now, only going back and watching the first episode again, it's the exact injury that she gets in the first episode. Um, Malady slashes up her arm, up her forearm, with her blade. So, you know, she was there and saw her get that injury at the asylum and then injures her in that exact same way in their first fight. So, yeah, just pick pick that up i didn't really yeah that's that's a good yeah it's the exact same it's only because i watched the sixth episode and then i went back and watched the first one and yeah it's like the exact same thing i found that really interesting it was almost like like malady saying yeah i know who you are but at this point amalia was didn't know who malady was she didn't know that she was sarah yeah I, i liked in that scene how amalia because at that point she was just discovering her powers and realizing that she had had this uh, premonition uh, when she first walked into the asylum and Horatio discuss like Amalia and Horatio kind of discover their powers together in the same room yeah like right after she gets slashed and she's she realizes her power and then Horatio tries to stitch her up and he realizes his power and that kind of bonding that they have that is now making me root for their relationship mm-hmm. Where previously I was kind of rooting for Amalia and Penance to get it on, but maybe they're going to be more sisters and that would be weird. Yeah, because when this first happened and you see him in the asylum and Dr. Horatio comes over, I, I thought to myself, oh, this is going to get weird because if he's like a doctor and he's treating her and he's, you know, she's vulnerable and he's meant to be this doctor, this, there should be no relationships going on here. But then obviously she he finds out straight away in this kind of bonding scene and she tells him everything so then they become more of a team than a doctor patient. He knows that she's not insane because he fully believes her. Um, and I think that's great. He's just like, no, no, totally. Aliens from the future. I believe you. I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> there was one, like, uh, there there was some dialogue in that scene I want to talk about. So Amalia says in that scene, she, she says, no one's bored, no one who is spored empathically enhanced there's no one here to guide us to say what needs to change and in response Horatio gives her that look Mm. like she's the one she's the one who's been spored who's empathically has she's the one to guide people to lead people to lead the touched and I actually think that the spore the empathic individual to lead the touched was supposed to be Sarah or Malady because when we see Sarah, uh, when we see Sarah, she's the first one to welcome Amalia. And in that scene where Amalia kind of starts to cry and break down, 
Sarah cradles her head and comforts her and reassures her that everything's going to be okay. And that see that looks to me like the action of an empathic individual. Yeah. And it seems to me like Sarah was the one, like the leader, the savior, the message bringer, the Jesus. But then the whole Dr. Haig thing happened and it kind of derailed and twisted her message with torture and pain. But I still kind of believe in her. I still kind of believe in Melody. Yeah, and I think like with uh, Nitta being a free lifer and changing her ways, kind of show, like what you said, that you can kind of be redeemed from anything, um, that there's still hope for Melody. Um, yeah, I think so. In terms of what you just said, I think it does make sense because if she's the one meant to lead them because she's the only one that remembers seeing the ship. So she's the only one that really knows the truth. And whether that's because the Galanthi wanted that or whether her mental state at the time meant that it didn't kind of land on her the same way it did with everyone else and she remembered it because she was already in a like a bad mental state. Um, yes. It's, it's, right, because like she's like Malady is or Sarah is the prophet. She's the one who saw God like Moses in the burning bush, God, uh, an angel came to him. Like, um, even though Amalia is the one who's literally a prophet because Amalia has visions of the future, it seems to me like Sarah is the one who is the conventional prophet mm. who is going, who was at least meant to be the, the prophet. Also, just before we move on, um, in regards to Amalia and Stripe, so we see back. Sorry, back in the future, uh, that Stripes having trouble and having like flashbacks because of being a soldier and being part of this war. And you see her like fall back in time and kind of have flashbacks. Right, PTSD flashbacks. Yeah, yeah. and then she gains the power of flash forwards, but it's this pretty much the same exact experience um, as her having her flashbacks. So it's, um yeah, I found that really interesting. Yeah, that sheds a little more light on on her power and where it came from. Yeah, because we kind of mentioned that everyone seems to have an ability that plays to something that's within them already. So next we have Dr. Haig coming to first meet Amalia and then Malady in the asylum. He pays a visit in search of subjects to experiment on. And to get Haig off of her case, Molly lies and tells Haig that she only said what she did to Sarah about the lights in the sky because Sarah was upset and she wanted to cheer her up. Um, so that was like a lie that would ultimately set Sarah on her murderous path. And how does Sarah know? How does Sarah know what Amalia told Haig is a question to ask, I guess. Yeah, I mean, kind of really sad that she does literally just kind of throw her under the bus but she knows that if she's going to be this leader that Horatio thinks so she needs to get out of there right so she's going to do whatever it takes at the same time I wasn't too upset because you didn't I thought we was going to see that they had a much closer relationship and that we would see this relationship between um Malady and Amalia or Molly and Sarah grow while they're at the asylum but you didn't we didn't really get a chance to see much of that so they weren't really like 
they weren't really best friends or super close. She makes yeah. it out to Molly. Uh, she yeah. makes it out to Sarah that they they are, and that's how Sarah kind of views them. But yeah, I don't think it's as big a betrayal as Sarah thinks it is. Yeah, you're totally right. I think Sarah thinks uh, it's a closer relationship than it actually was because Amalia was the first person to believe her uh, when she was talking about the lights in the sky and, and the dragonfly and the the sparks and all that stuff. So that kind of endeared her and bonded her to Amalia. Like, somebody believes me and listens to me. I think it makes sense to me that her Amalia would do that because she's a she's a survivor right and she was a soldier in an apocalypse and it makes sense to me that self-preservation would be baked into that experience so she was preserving herself kind of as like a like a instinctual reaction Hmm. which is still pretty uh backstabby but (laughs) it makes sense to her character yeah, I also really just enjoyed seeing Dr. Haig kind of in his element, you know, before he's gone down this three-year path to become super crazy underground doctor. <laughs> yeah, he's weirdly charming. Yeah, and he's got this like, cool white top hat, but he's very, I like, straight off, Amalia can tell, right? She's like, this guy's shady. Don't, don't want anything to do with this guy. <laughs> yeah. So we also see that Amalia meets Lavinia in the asylum, and it's Lavinia who gets Amalia discharged, uh, even though, you know, Lavinia suspects that Amalia could have escaped on her own if she wanted to. It's interesting that Lavinia is the one who's working with potentially both of the people who hitchhiked to the past, because I think Dr. Haig is the one and we'll get into that i think dr (laughs) haig is from the future and amalia is obviously from the future so lavinia is kind of working with both of them on both sides of the aisle for some reason or another yeah she's bipartisan yeah it's tricky she's i don't know she's very witty isn't she she goes in she knows exactly like you say um she could have escaped on her own if she wanted to but she doesn't know where she'd go and lavinia I don't know whether Amalia trusted her or not. She, as you say, is like survival of the fittest and she does what she has to. So she's being offered the place to go. She's going to take it, even if she doesn't. Because throughout the episodes, it seems like none of them really trust Lavinia. But, you know, they're going to take what they can get, right? Yeah, totally. That's what you do. So after all that, we cut to modern day London or, you know, (laughs) the past for us, the present for them. Um, it's all going to get very confusing now. <laughs> uh, we see what happened underground when Amalia and the squad attempted to get to the Galanthi. So I thought that this was going to be... At the end of the last episode, I said, well, I hope that next episode is going to be like half first half of the episode, the fight underground, and then the second half of the episode kind of explanation. But what we really got was like 40%, uh, 80% backstory of Amalia and the Galanthi, and then 20%, if that, of um, really like the last 10 minutes or so. Um, yeah, you're right. <laughs> of this underground part, it went very quickly. I thought we was going to see a lot more of of the team, but really we just saw that very brief moment of the fight, which was 
good. I thought it was funny with Augie and Horatia kind of calling him over, like, leave the drill, come and help me, like, I'm dying here. <laughs> and then she falls down alone, which was necessary because she goes on to chat to the Galanthi. Uh, we see the flashes of memories. Uh, we see her in one of her most recent memories, uh, telling Penance about her story and how she came to be in Victorian England. Uh, We're then shown the quick flashes of future events with different characters speaking to Amalia. Or is this the Galanthi speaking through people? Or is it something else, you know, hallucinations? It's, uh, there's a lot to take in in that flash forward and I try to like play it slowly and kind of like play pause, play pause my way through it to see if I could see who everyone was and kind of take it all in. Then the the creepy guys come in and attack her and she's like, oh, this bit happens now. Which leads me to think that she remembers everything that she just saw, even though Myrtle told her she's going to have to forget that part. Then she narrowly escapes with the help of Beth Cassini, who is the shop assistant, who uh, raises the lift with her powers uh, and she she goes on up. But yeah, so I guess the thing we need, the the biggest things for me in this part of the show was her conversation to the Galanthi, because it's kind of like, we've already seen Nitta's conversation to the Galanthi in the future, where she's kind of distraught and she's talking to it like, you're here, you're supposed to be helping us. And then now we see Amalia kind of doing the same thing. You know, she's, she's asking it why you know, all these people that it hasn't helped, including Sarah, which, you know, Amalia seems to really, really care that Sarah has got a raw deal out of this. And the line, I left my heart to come here, was very endearing yes. with the relationship with Penance. Yeah, her it, performance in this was fantastic. Yeah. The scene, like, uh, with her the flash forward, most of Amalia's glimpses of the future so far have been like the immediate future. Yes. But when she sees Myrtle, like Myrtle's wearing very modern clothes and communicating very clearly. So mm-hmm. I don't know if maybe that's the Galanthi speaking through the image of Myrtle. But my theory is that it is the distant future. And that's like an evolved form of Myrtle. And. I think that the orphans aren't going to stay in Victorian times forever. I think that they inevitably go to the future. Like, they they form, like, a superhero group and they travel to the future for some kind of reason. That's my theory. I accidentally um, kind of spoiled this for myself by looking just at the Nevers on the internet because it was coming out in the UK. And I saw, like, a, just a screenshot of Myrtle... And it said, like, huge twists. And I was like, oh, no. I was like, oh, no. What's happened? Like, so then to see that it's this and that it doesn't really tell us anything, I was quite relieved because, yeah, it's a little bit confusing for me because she says, like I said, she says, I'm going to need you to forget this. But then it seems like she remembers everything that she just saw because she says about the guys, oh, this this happens now. Um, So we're assuming that she does forget that she saw Myrtle because otherwise she's going to go back and surely want to have words with her and be like, is that something you're not telling me? Not that she can actually tell her because they can't understand what she says. Um, And then obviously I guess the most important thing is the voice saying, you don't think you're the only one that hitched a ride here, do you? Um, So you think that's Dr. Haig? 
Yeah, I think I think the free lifer dude we saw in the beginning is Dr. Haig, and I'm convinced because Dr. Haig mentions explicitly that he's American in I think maybe the first or second episode. So the American thing is the free lifer clue, and then just his barbarity with experimenting on the touched is reminiscent of all those scientist corpses and the torturing of the Galanthi that the free lifers were doing. So I feel like that's, I feel very convinced that Dr. Haig is in fact a free lifer. Yeah, I'd not thought about that. I was kind of racking my brain. I don't know who it could be, but that, that kind of makes perfect sense. (laughs) So uh, then uh, we see the team reuniting at the orphanage and Penance tells Amalia that they didn't save Malady, and Amalia takes that to mean that Malady died. Penance is clearly hurt and disappointed, but doesn't correct her. Um, Amalia decides it's time to tell the team everything about the Galanthi, her story, and what's to come. Yeah, obviously we'd already seen the the first part in the in the last episode, and uh, yeah, Penance agrees that it's definitely time to tell everybody about everything. Yes, it was interesting because everybody was going around the last episode talking about the Galanthi. So she'd mentioned the Galanthi and all of this, but obviously nothing about her past in particular. She'd only told Penance about that because last episode we weren't really sure who knew what. So yeah, this kind of clears up that it was only Penance that she told absolutely everything. And obviously we know now that Horatio has known everything from right back when she came to Victorian times. Right. Uh, So we then learn Amalia's or Molly's true name the name that she kept from her spouses, the name that she kept from Nitta, the name that she's kept from Penance until now, uh, she resolves to finally share it with her friend and her ally, a gesture that shows just how deeply she cares for and cherishes her friendship with Penance. So her name is Zephyr Alexis Naveen. So before I like go- this is before I googled anything to do with any of these names and what their meanings might be. But uh, just as after she tells her her name, Penance's invention that comes out of the carriage that was to rescue Malady. Um, we see it in the last episode, a little bit of a blue balloon come out of the carriage, uh, right. rises up into the air. And as it goes past, I'm like, oh, it's a Zephyr. Okay. So, <laughs> um, and I say this to, to Sean and he's like, what's a Zephyr? I was like, a Zephyr. It's like a flying airship thing, which... You cannot find anything about on the internet. He's like, I've never heard of a Zephyr. That's a Zeppelin. I'm like, no, it's a Zephyr. Um, Which I only know because I'm a Disney nerd. And there's the ride in California, which is the Golden Zephyrs. Um, So yeah, a Zephyr is like this flying machine. So I was like, that's crazy because she tells her her name Zephyr. And then this invention of hers, which is a Zephyr, comes out. So I'm like, she must name this after her. Like, in, like she invents this and calls it a Zephyr oh, after that's Zephyr. That's interesting. That's that. That's like that's what I thought. Um, and then we did googlings of of all the all the all the names. But um, you you go ahead and tell us what you think of the names. Yeah. So uh, so first of all, I have to give. So this just uh, this is what blew my mind. I have to give credit for this observation to uh, someone on Reddit named Is That You, Julie Newmar. Uh, uh, I just kind of glanced on Reddit what people were saying and I came across this connection. It just blew my mind and it tied so many things together. So, like you were saying the word Zephyr, right? Uh, the word can have multiple meanings, I guess. I never realized that it meant the floating balloon thing. So maybe it, it's a little bit of a double entendre. But 
if you uh, Google the definition of the word Zephyr, Zephyr is defined as a soft, gentle breeze or a light wind, right? Mm. And the butterfly effect is the idea that something small and gentle can do something big. Like, and the example given, when a butterfly flaps its wings and it creates a tsunami across the globe. So I didn't make that connection. Amalia's uh, sacred secret name is a symbol of God's plan. If God is the butterfly, and remember, Sarah describes the Galanthi as a dragonfly. Yeah. But if if God is a butterfly that flaps its wings, Zephyr is the small wind that will cause the big tsunami that will hopefully change everything. That just exploded my mind. And to kind of tie it back into biblical imagery, when the world becomes too destructive and evil, it's the tsunami, it's the flood that washes everything anew and restarts life. And just, I I, I feel I wanted to talk about th- that idea of something small doing something big because it, it's expressed very explicitly. Amalia sees herself as something small and insignificant. Um, and that's like her name, Zephyr, a small wind. That's what she sees herself as. And like when Horatio looks to her as a potential leader of the touched, her response is, I did my time. I spent a lifetime fighting and it didn't make a difference. She even sees herself as physically small and insignificant with that doughy frame and lacking (laughs) tallness piece of dialogue. So I think the, like, And to go back a little further, I think the answer to Amalia, and now I'm going to call her Zephyr, I think the answer to Zephyr's feelings of smallness and insignificance, they, I think the answer came when Knitter said, nothing will crack this world harder than one gentle question. Mm. Knitter uses the word gentle, and a Zephyr is a gentle wind. And I think that Amalia's destiny, Zephyr's destiny, is to do something big. And by revealing her real name at the end, and by telling the truth to all the orphans, I think Amalia is finally acknowledging that. That uh, now she's ready. Everybody's ready. We're going to do something. That that was crazy to me. That's all some really interesting stuff. As we talk about the butterfly effect, all I can think about is that in the in the cupboards in the science room in the future, there was the the frame with the butterflies in. Oh, that's right. Yeah, there was. Um, You've got a good eye. That's yeah. They were they were cool. Uh, I was trying. I was very like I paused it and was trying to look at all the items to see if it was anything that we'd seen. So they had like the white gloves that were possibly I don't know whether they were like looses or. Um, there was the umbrella, which could have been one of the like electrified umbrellas. This is if they are things from this past, or they could just be random things from a normal uh, Victorian time. We're, we're not sure, but yeah, I looked up the Zephyr in Greek mythology. It's like god of west wind. It's all about wind, like you say. And then Alexis in Greek mythology is apparently something along the lines of defender or helper. Oh. That's interesting. Um, so that plays into the same thing, like of what her role is. Yeah, and it's amazing how all these there's so many tiny details that 
like this the writing is so intricately planned and like uh, the story and the mythology and the world world building is so layered and uh substantive and it's so easy to mine these nuggets of gold mm-hmm. like it's it's so incredible to think about how deeply thought about every aspect of the characters their names uh their stories their arcs everything is planned so so well and it's almost overwhelming to think about we now know more about the galanthi not everything but more um we know why amalia knows how to fight so well she's a stripe from canada uh we know how amalia malady horatio and dr edmund haig and lavinia all met and we know that the spores don't affect everyone and they don't typically cause random powers. We don't yet know what pattern they follow in discriminating between who gets a power and who doesn't. That's to be discovered. Yeah, I think that's um, interesting that the spores don't affect everyone because obviously we see that they fall down over the entirety of London and they, they clearly land on everybody, but they, they don't affect everyone. Um also, the Galanthi, yeah. Like I said at the beginning of this, we have so many answered questions, but it just now leads us to way, way more questions. <laughs> I, I I, believe that the Galanthi are good and that they came to, to generally just help the planet um, and help humans with their technology. And humans, as they do, just continue to destroy everything. I'm going to play devil's advocate and say that I believe the opposite, but really I agree with you. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think, I think they probably, I mean, um, the spores that they released in the future made everybody more empathic and like Knitter is the example. I have one other burning question is that when um, Amalia got down to where the Galanthi was, that there was no one there. At least to start with, there was no one, and then all that happened was the the henchmen kind of ran in and they had the fight. But we only saw the one touched, which was the the shop assistant. No one else was there, not the doctor, not the assistant, not um, the Vinia. Where were they, and what were they doing? Because Lavinia really wanted, and I know that the the hanging was happen happening, but Lavinia wasn't there, and she. 100% didn't want Augie to be in the city that day. So I'm wondering, yeah, I'm just wondering why now. I think that's they one might of the- have, Right, they might have just been occupied by what was happening with the whole malady thing. Yeah, maybe. It'd be interesting to see if there was something else going on. Anyway, we'll move on to some letters, more letters from our listeners. Comments, theories, questions, uh, you can tweet to us at the Nevers Podcast without an A. Uh, you can also send us your letter or a voice recording by email to the Nevers Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we'll read all the letters in upcoming episodes. Most of these letters were submitted to us prior to this week's mid-season finale episode, and a few of them are addressing Amalia's when, not where remark, but we didn't want to ignore our listeners who took the time to write to us. So we're going to read them. We did have to edit some uh, for length, though. Uh, But anyway, let's dive in. Okay, so the first letter is from Stephanie Holtzman. She writes, I have a time issue about episode six. Assuming that the spaceship that spread the spores came on one day and was only in the sky for an hour or so, in episode one, 
we see Amalia drop into the river, and the spores go under the water to bring her back to life. We also see Sarah and Malady being, sorry, Sarah slash Malady being shoved into the carriage in the same episode under the same conditions. Spores dropping down on her. I'm going to make a huge assumption that the doctor was taking her away to experiment on her as a result of the conversation from episode 6. The problem becomes that Amalia ends up in in the insane asylum after she jumps into the water and is there for days, weeks, or months? Question mark. Uh, yet there, that is where she meets Sarah Malady, uh, slash Malady, who hasn't become the murderous, outrageous character yet. I was under the assumption that Sarah became Malady from the spores on the same day that Amalia uh, Stripe jumped and came out of the river. I can't seem to get a grip on how Sarah and Amalia would be in the insane asylum at the same time when the spores hit the same day. Got ideas? I love your podcast. It's like a master's degree in English literature analysis. You see things I never would have suspected, but can see after you explain them. It makes me go back and rewatch each episode. Thank you so much for writing in, Stephanie. What I would say is that I don't think I don't think it's the spores that necessarily transformed Sarah into Malady. Mm. I think it's Dr. Edmund Haig who transformed Sarah into Malady. Because as we saw, Sarah was totally chill in the asylum. Like she was compassionate and empathetic and friends with Amalia somewhat. Uh, and it was Amalia's betrayal and Dr. Haig's barbarity, off-screen barbarity that I that I think turned her into the kind of twisted anti-hero that she is, as we know her. Um, and once again, I wanted to say, Stephanie, your, your compliment is very kind. Very, very much appreciate it. I'll say we're just the TAs in this English class. So thank you very much. You have any thoughts? Yeah, thank you. Um, I think it was quite confusing to see because it is a little bit, you're like, oh, Sarah's already in the asylum, but we've seen her when the spores fell being put in the car and essentially being taken to the asylum. So what I think has happened is that from what we see, I can kind of assume, I would assume that she's been there before and um, she's had issues for a a prolonged time and she's been in and out of, of the asylum. She says that she's writing to her partner so yeah I I would think that she's had issues and she's been in and out so at the time the spores fall she's being I would think taken from her home not for the first time dragged out of her home and taken to the asylum again so that when we see her at the asylum she feels like she's at home already because she seems to know everyone there know how it all works and um yeah and then she meets Amalia so I think that's probably what's going on but the, the show does I think make it quite confusing about how she gets from that scene that we've seen in the first episode to being already at the asylum when you'd think that Amalia makes it there only maybe a few hours after she's been pulled out of the water and ends up in the asylum. So for Sarah to already be there and be so at home, I would assume that maybe she's been there before and and that this is, yeah, before she meets Dr. Haig at the end uh, and goes off and is experimented on for, we don't know how long, possibly, you know, years, um, before she becomes malady. Yeah, then- I I admire I admire your efforts to make sense of that. I have no sense of time. 
<laughs> so, but yeah, thanks, well Stephanie. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so our next submission is another one from our pal Berza, who submitted a voice recording. So let's listen to it. Hello, this is Peter Holwarsen calling in from Norway to get your thoughts on something. Because I have come to the conclusion that Penance is a true Vedenesque hero and that Amalia isn't. First, I need to explain what I mean by a Vedenesque hero. Shirak said something interesting last episode about Penance. Uh, she's, she's like a Disney character living in a Game of Thrones world. and, and... Now... This is pretty much exactly what Angel tells Connor about what it means to be a champion. We live as though the world were as it should be, to show it what it can be. So, most people who are interested in Buffy studies know that Veden is inspired by existentialism. So that when Buffy tells Ford that you always have a choice, or when Angel tells Kate that actions matter more than outcomes, they are paraphrasing Sartre. So, to make a long-winded argument short, a witness hero has to be someone who doesn't let circumstance force them into making certain choices. A witness hero will do what they believe is right, even when it may seem futile, because if you let your hand be forced by circumstance, you are just an object in the world. You are not an agent or a champion. Uh, so by choosing to save Malady, even if she may fail and even though Malady may be beyond saving, Penance has asserted her power to make her own choices. And so she is a champion in the way that Angel understands it. She does what she feels is right and she pays no heed to the possible outcomes. To do other would be to act in bad faith and thus let the world decide the choices for you. Amalia, on the other hand, reminds me of Giles in The Gift when he comes to blows with Buffy. Because Giles may want to save the world, but he lets the world decide the terms. But I've sworn to protect this sorry world, and sometimes that means saying and doing what other people can't. Glory is ruthless, and so Giles decides to be ruthless too. And I think Amalia is the same way. You know, uh, Amalia comes very close to killing Lucy, uh, the same way that Giles killed Ben. Her argument for doing so is that they are in a war, and killing a collaborator is what Masson would have done. Uh, but yeah, that's all I have to say. Very curious to hear what you think. Have a wonderful day. Thank you, Bazaar. Um, yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff there. I think uh, I touched on kind of like my view on what kind of hero uh, now we'll call her Zephyr is. Um, I think very much, yeah, she's a soldier and she has that mentality like Chirag said of, you know, do what you can to get the job done. Um, but I do think she has the best for everyone at heart and she's a good person and will do what she believes is the right thing. So I think she's a great hero um, and it's nice to have a hero that will, I don't know, kick some ass, I guess. <laughs> yeah, um, 
I loved your deconstruction, Berzer. Um, actions matter more than outcomes. That's, it's also a very profound bit of Eastern wisdom that you'll find to be the central thesis of a work like the Bhagavad Gita, for example. Uh, like, focus on the goal, not the outcome, because the outcome is beyond your control. And mm -hmm. I think you're right in that it, it perfectly describes penance and her relationship to the society in which she lives. Um, there's, a, there's a great quote that I dug up uh, when I read or listened to your um, voice recording. Uh, it's from Hazrat Khan. The lover that leans upon the beloved's response, his love is like the flame that needs oil to live. But the lover who stands on her own feet is like the lantern of the sun that burns without oil. I feel like penance's desire to save malady is pure because it doesn't expect an outcome. Because penance decides, she decides to act because it's the right thing to do. Even if malady stabs her for laughs and ultimately penance does fail, but that's not the point. And Amalia acknowledges at the end that that's not the point and it was the right call to yeah. save Malady. Yeah, I, I think that's a beautiful deconstruction. and I appreciate that. Yes, thank you. Uh, next, we have an email from Rebel Introvert. Uh, they write, The Never Is Episode 4, Thoughts on the Episode and Podcast. I don't send or post replies to any TV reviews or even engage. I'm too private of a person, but I just can't help it anymore. Plus, email is a bit more private. Can I first say you are just brilliant, Laura, observing things that I miss, like Myrtle understanding Mary's song and figuring out just from the Beggar King's comment that Odium could walk on water. And trust me, I spent two hours on a less than one hour episode. I also love it when you, Chirag, provide historical or religious references. I don't like when you apologize for it, though. <laughs> you have nothing to apologize for. Just speak your truth, bro. I smiled when Pennant said literally what you talked about, the blasphemy of walking on water for the purpose of murder. Anyway, once again, I could trust the brilliant Laura to pick up the when in Amalia's statement, not where. Thanks, Laura. I too was surprised. Something else you didn't mention though, which I thought you'd also think about. She said, We don't have enough time and we don't have enough space. With regards to space, buildings have taken up a lot of space, so I concluded that she was from the future. But a more distant future than ours, where perhaps technology is even more advanced, such that it gives gifts. People are even busier and technological structures, like in Black Panther, and buildings have left no space for graves and such. I believe she further confirmed this future bit when she lamented the restrictions placed on a woman in their current time. After that, I dropped the alien assumption. I'd like to know what you think about that. Also, with Lucy, Amalia's first mistake as Lucy seemed to point out, was to think of Lucy as a fellow comrade, a sister, simply because Lucy wielded a formidable power. I understood that showdown scene as Lucy pointing out that they could never be sisters or comrades because Lucy could never understand Amalia's lived experiences. 
Lucy was never a soldier or even been in a war zone. She was just a simple mother with a terrible power thrust upon her at a most terrible time. Okay, that's that's all I've got. I was not sure whether to send this before or after you've done the episode's review, but whatever, uh, you peeps are way cooler and more insightful than the official podcast, plus it feels good to rant about mm-hmm. the Nevers. I've only had one show, Wentworth intrigued me this much to finally get a visceral reaction, so to speak. Warm regards. Thank you so much for that email, Rebel. Uh, Laura, your thoughts? Uh, yeah, thanks for your letter. Yeah, I don't think we delved in too much about the, the we don't have enough time, we don't have enough space. I think we were on the general thought process of that she's from the future in some respect, um, but hadn't thought too much about what that world might look like. Um, because it's the future and it like the possibilities are endless. Um, now we see that the world's just a complete and utter mess. So yeah, yeah. I mean, you see in that war zone bit, there's there's no time when people are dying everywhere. It's too dangerous. There's no funerals. There's nothing. You, someone dies, that's it. You move on. Um, I didn't also in this episode kind of mention how. I guess most of the time we've been talking about Amalia and I mentioned that I thought that she had died when she dumped into the water and her body had been taken over. But we thought, or at least I thought, that it was probably by an alien being of some kind. Now, of course, we know that not an alien, but in fact a human from the future. But yeah, I hadn't really thought about that possibility. But to see that the the Galanthi had the power to do that is kind of crazy. To p- literally pull someone's soul or consciousness from the future and bring it back through a wormhole of sorts and put it in another person's body, because the 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 uh, the coincident the coincidences in the timing is crazy, isn't it? I mean, I'm sure at any given moment there's someone um, there would have been someone dying in London, but for it to be someone that. Uh, as Chirag said at the start of this episode, is kind of like the opposite kind of character. The the two of them together kind of make a whole. And yeah, it was very uh, either coincidental or we don't like coincidences in TV. So it was just, it was meant to happen. It was meant to be. So kind of more towards the, the, the religious side of things, maybe. Um, yeah, just like Molly says, it's... Uh... It's it's a it's all God's plan, you know. We're just here, and the Galanthi is very godlike, very worship worthy, perhaps, or at least a, an ancient society would have no problem worshiping the Galanthi. Mm. I will say about um, the whole funeral thing. Uh, yeah, you you hit it straight on. Like war does de uh, devalue life. It it. A a single life is no longer as valuable in a war zone where hundreds, thousands, millions of people are dying. Um, And I guess that's the kind of the danger of war, how it kind of uh, warps our perceptions of each other and of ourselves. And it does seem to me a little bit like the war that is represented in the future between the free lifers and the PDC or whatever, it feels to me like that war is kind of um, representative of World War II 
if we're thinking about it in a historical context. And that is the future we're trying to avoid. We're trying to avoid World War II happening. And this is like the worst case scenario, World War II, where there's, like they mentioned, there's nukes flying everywhere and the whole world is a waste, like a, like a radioactive, uh, Chernobyl. Yeah, uh, that, that historic parallel makes some sense to me. Uh, yeah, thanks for your email, Rebel. Yes, thank you, Rebel Introvert. Our next letter is from Tina Rollins. Why do you think Amalia is wearing a choker for the last few episodes? I first thought it was from her run-in with Odium, but she is seen without it after the river fight. I'm starting to think the turns are heightened senses the touched have in order to help the Galanthi to save the human race. So thank you, Tina. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I think really that's noticed. a question for the wardrobe department. Yeah, I mean, I have paid a lot of attention to the wardrobe. I was going to say, I know I mentioned on the third episode, I think it was about her dress and it looked like the bird shape and it was a really awesome dress. I loved it. Um, the last episode, so episode five, I loved the trousers. She was wearing like, very, uh, Amalia was wearing very wide leg trousers, looked like a dress. And it was kind of like, in that time, women would have always been in dresses, okay? And it's very, very modern for women to have worn trousers, right? So... That for me was great because that's showing just another thing about how she's probably from the future and a very kind of forward-thinking woman um, and, and they looked amazing. I thought it was great. Uh, and then in the this this last episode, she's wearing, the, I think, the same trousers but they're, they're tied off at the, at the ankle because you don't want big flappy trousers when you're going to have a fight and you're going underground. Very practical. You know, you don't want to be fighting around in dresses like in the first few episodes when she keeps losing her dresses because she gets into into scraps. Yeah, the choker I did notice in this last episode and I did look at it and think, oh, she's wearing a thing around her neck. Um, but I didn't I, I didn't pay close enough attention in the last, like if it was the last few episodes or why. I didn't kind of question why. I just thought, yeah, she's wearing a, a neck thing. <laughs> did you, you didn't think in anything more of it, Chirag, or...? Oh, I, I mean, I, once again, I admire your uh, your willingness to make sense of the fashion choices. <laughs> but just like time loopiness and uh, uh, fashion, those are two things I don't understand at all. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of the heightened senses, I think that's definitely right. Yeah, I think it's probably the Galanthi, this power that they have, these snowdrops, the spores, um, bring out people's already probably heightened element of themselves or their best feature and and that it is hopefully because you know they are trying to help and the best way they can help if they have this power is to make the best of the humans that they can so that the humans can essentially save themselves right and it does seem like the people who got the powers were the ones in victorian society who would be um uh you know traditionally disenfranchised women people of color so I think uh, empowering the disempowered might is the only pattern that I can really latch on to. Other than that, we're going to have to see. There'll, there'll be many more plot twists and revelations to come. There will indeed. Uh, so, yeah, thank you, Tina. Um, our very last letter is from Rob Taylor. Hi. First, allow me to thank you for a terrific podcast, the type of podcast that warrants repeated listening. Uh, I very much enjoy your almost scholarly approach, very insightful and enjoyable. 
I do have a theory on Amalia's true identity. I suspect, I suspect I am not the first to notice this, and if it's already been discussed on your podcast, forgive me, I may have missed it. So the theory, uh, when Penance made her comment, true, I can't imagine how many funerals you've been to, but Amalia cuts her off and says, none, we don't do that when I'm from, we don't have enough time, we don't have enough ground. Uh, she says, when I'm from, not where I'm from. So this strongly suggests to me that Amalia is from the future. If the message sent to her via Mary was uh, her mother, then perhaps we are talking about people, even a family, who may have travelled back in time to um, try to alter history, perhaps to avoid whatever has caused there to be not enough time and not enough ground for funerals. Uh, It's a well-worn road um, in sci-fi, but perhaps we are talking about a future war-torn planet earth in such bad shape that Amalia was left in Victorian England to change the course of history, specifically to give voice to segments of society that were without power. As the show moves ahead, I wouldn't be shocked to see True and Penance become involved in the women's suffragette movement, um, for instance. Also, a shout out to Laura Donnelly. All of the cast in The Nevers uh, is excellent, but Laura Donnelly is absolutely award-winning. Um, she, uh, I was already a fan. I am now a bigger fan and feel the strong need to find a way to see a video of her performance in The Ferryman. Uh, thank you for listening, Rob. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously we've already got to a point now where we know uh, Amalia's origins, or at least the the ball points of it. Um, it would be interesting to see a lot more of, of um, Stripes or Zephyr's past leading up to that point that we just saw. And I don't know whether it'll be, whether more of that future that we've already seen will be seen or um, it will be like, as we said, a change future. Or as Chirag said, we're going to see the orphans and other people go to the future from this time. I would tag an addendum to that, though. The simulation theory still technically has not been totally disproven. That's true. So, <laughs> so whatever, like, whatever the Vegas odds are on that, it's still, you know, it, the, the story lottery could come out that way. Um, but yeah, I think uh, more likely than not, you called it uh, the time traveling. And I totally agree about Laura Donnelly. I, uh, she has such a gravitas and she basically like you mentioned laura plays three different roles in this episode she plays that the the meek girl with the irish accent uh like a like a mad woman with the canadian american accent and then she goes back to the regular english accent amalia towards the end again and she's just captivating and so personable and so easy to watch on the screen in every rendition she's on the screen it's just uh i can't get enough of it so i totally agree yeah no she is absolutely fantastic um as rob says the entire cast is excellent but yeah she is definitely um one of the standouts and yeah i mean playing yeah all those different sides of this character is uh pretty impressive it'd be uh Interesting to to hear some behind the scenes stuff from her of uh, what it was like having to play all those different parts. Because obviously, as an actor, you don't you don't see all the other parts necessarily of the show that's happening. You know, you film your scenes, and often you don't even meet half the cast that is in the show. You know, she would never have had a run in, or maybe even seen. I mean, I'm assuming they saw how each other played the roles um, of of Zephyr and and Amalia, but 
yeah, it's kind of crazy how the whole process comes together. So it did a really yeah, good it's job. It's a testament, testament to her talent. Yeah. So yeah, thank you very much for that, Rob. We're sorry if we didn't get to your letter. Uh, we received quite a few and couldn't get to all of them without making this a three-hour-long episode. Uh, but rest assured, we will get to most, if not all, on the next episode. You got any favorite quotes? Uh, I think, much like the last episode, I enjoyed kind of all of the script and dialogue. There was a lot to get through. It's very, very heavy. Like the first, the first act or chapter. It was just all this new language being thrown around, uh, like with the the morphine, and they call it theme. I think, yeah, so when Amalia first turns up, or when Stripe, as we know at the time, turns up at the asylum, uh, the whole interaction with, like, the matron, is that what you'd call her? Um, like, the head lady. That was brilliant. So when you see her with Horatio... He's like, oh, you might want to, might. This is funny as well because in the first episode, um, she tells Myrtle that Horatio swears a lot, and he's like, no, I don't. And then, like the next sense sentence, he's like, that's fucking amazing. Um, so this he says to her, you might not want to say fuck so often, uh, and also give me back my morphine because she just pinched it like she did in the future, and she's just like fuck. <laughs> So that's interesting because he's telling her not to swear so often, but in the in the past, which is their future, sorry, in the future, they um, he's the one that is introduced to us as being swearing a lot. Yeah, so that's that's interesting. I never caught that. So we see that he's changed. She she's rubbed off on him a little she's bit. She's rubbed off on him definitely. <laughs> oh yeah, in more ways than one. <laughs> I think the way that they both speak so both Zephyr and Amalia. They do a great job at just the way that they speak. Everything's so quick in this show. Um, the dialogue's so believable. Like you, the, It's very natural when you really believe that they're those characters saying those things. Because I, I, I find it hard to watch a lot of television when I just think, oh, they're not, that's not believable. But it, these actors are all fantastic and the script is amazing. So pretty much all the dialogue is just bang on. <laughs> and just... I guess moving on to some final thoughts. For me, the the beautiful thing about this show, like I guess I would compare it to The Matrix in the way that it can be read on multiple levels. Like it can be read religiously, it can be read philosophically, it can be read fantastically or scientifically, and every every reading has its own merit to it. Um, I'm I like. I'm not fluent enough in any one discipline, let alone all of them, when I'm talking about it to like mingle and connect the sci-fi elements with the religious references, with the historic parallels, and balance all of that with the enormously interesting politics of personality and like just pinballing between a hundred different characters and <laughs> and then juggling all the time loopy cryptic stuff and uh all the fashion choices I don't understand and <laughs> all these threads inter, inter, interweaving and in these familiar and unfamiliar shapes. But, but yeah, it's, it's been, it's been nice to talk about it on this podcast and have the opportunity to discuss. And I, I hope I've been somewhat intelligible. It's, uh, it's hard to put it into words sometimes to have discussions. Yeah, no, it's really nice to be able to discuss it with um, 
with more people because I know you just learn so much more. So there's things that, that, that you've said that I'm like, oh, I've not thought about that. And then you start thinking and then I have to go back and watch it again. I think I've watched, I will watch this show again now. I will watch episode one to six just straight through um, all together because I've been kind of like skipping around them all over the last six weeks. So now they're all out in the UK. So I will watch them just straight up one to six. I've already watched the first one. So I've already noticed way more stuff now that I've seen all six episodes. There's so much that you pick up on. So Yeah, you can watch it with like a new frame of mind. Yeah, it's just because um, there's been so many twists and turns, but it's also still enjoyable to watch. Having watched the first episode like three or four times now, it's still enjoyable, which is great. Uh, so this, oh, yeah. this sixth episode in particular, I enjoyed. I felt like it was... It was pretty slow paced because it was a lot of just explaining, um, you know, the past and and Amalia's backstory. It was quite dark and quite kind of somber compared to the previous episodes that have all been pretty like exciting and and, and fast going, you know. Um, but I really enjoyed it. I thought it was it was a really great thing. I liked how it told us the backstory that it took us from one place to another yeah and now I'm kind of like the ensuing episodes so I guess straight off we're hoping to see a big old meeting in the orphanage and everyone's been informed in what's going on I'm hoping that Augie will stay with them as much as he can like he seemed really in there you know (laughs) I think he's found his place um I would like to find out, like I said, where everyone else from the underground was because I'm sure I'm just convinced they're off doing something even shiftier. And yeah, be ready for the next mission where they would will hopefully go down and try and save the Glanfi, I'm assuming. I'm assuming as well, hopefully. Yeah, and the voice, the voice, the other person that came down, I'm not I'm not entirely I I'm not sure if it's Dr. Haig or who it is, but it'll be very interesting to find out for definite who that is and what's happening with future Myrtle. (laughs) That'll do it for this episode of the podcast. If you enjoy the Nevers podcast, feel free to leave us a positive review. You know where to find us. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music Podcast, and YouTube, and wherever else you stream your podcasts. Uh, for more Nevers-related content, you can find us on the web at hbothenevers.com, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at hbothenevers, and also at the Nevers Podcast and at the Nevers Podcast without an A uh, on Twitter. Comments or questions can be sent to the Nevers Podcast at gmail.com. And uh, thank you know, thank you to our listeners for joining us. Thank you, Chirag, for for joining me. Uh, would you like to share your social media for people to follow you? Yeah, yeah, I mean you can you can find me on Twitter. Uh you can find me on Instagram. You can you can find me in the future. <laughs> I'll, I'll be somewhere. Uh, I'll pro- I'll probably be like a bunch of fragmented skeleton pieces like, <laughs> g- ground into the dirt of an apocalyptic wasteland. <laughs> like giant rolling war tanks. Thank you so much for listening. Uh to to my voice and thank you Laura. It's been cool. Uh, to all the people who half listened on the toilet, I appreciate you. <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah, thank you everyone. And uh, I guess until next week, uh, this has been the Nevers Podcast. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
This episode of the Nevers Podcast was written, produced, and edited by Matthew Yamanashi at Culture Inject Studios. The intro and outro music was produced by Jilirme Morais. We are more than just a podcast. We're a fan community. You can keep up to date on The Nevers and chat with other fans by visiting hbothenevers.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search HBO The Nevers, all one word, and click that follow button. The Nevers podcast is not endorsed by Mutant Enemy, Warner Media Entertainment, or any of its subsidiaries, including Home Box Office, HBO, and is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. The Nevers and all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective copyright holders. It's time to tell them everything. The future, the galanthi, the fight that's coming. Feels right. It's coming soon. I know. My name is Zephyr. Zephyr Alexis Levine. Well, I'm very pleased to meet you. Me too.